I will read beginning at um, verse 1 in chapter 2, the word of God. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, for every one of you judges. For in passing judgment on, on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Moving down to verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth? You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, Dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man is uncircumcised, a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man but from God. Amen. This is the word of God. You know, sometimes um, the scriptures describe culture, and sometimes the culture uh, describes scripture. And we're at one of the uh, latter rather than the former. If you've seen the AT&T Just OK commercials, you understand Romans 2. Huh? You know, have you, have you seen the, the okay surgeon? He's uh, getting ready to come into the uh, hospital room where a man is laying on the bed. He's nervous about some surgery. His wife's trying to bring him comfort. The nurse is trying to comfort him. And so he turns to the nurse and he, and he says, is he a good surgeon? And, and she says, he, he's Okay. And uh, he's about to walk into the room, the surgeon, and, and he says, guess who's just got reinstated? And then as he walks into the room, he turns to the patient and says, well, technically not yet. And he sees that the patient is really nervous. So he says, are, are, are you worried? And, and the, the patient says, yeah. And he says, me too. 
And he says, don't worry about it. We'll figure it out when we get in there. Just okay is not okay. Do you remember the, I went and I've seen so many of these. I I really do like the commercials because it really is so where we are as a, a people, humanity. Another one is the car mechanic and guy walks in to the car mechanic who's, who works on brakes and he says, uh, are you really good at working on brakes? And he says, ah, we're okay. Just okay? And the guy, the, the mechanic says, hey, we've got a saying around here. If the brakes don't stop you, something will. <laughs> My very favorite is the tattoo artist. And the tattoo artist, he, he's got the young man in the chair and he's got the tattoo gun getting ready to go on his arm. And, and he says, first tattoo? And the guy, young man says, yeah. He says, don't worry, amigo, it's going to be okay. I'm one of the tattoo artists in the city. And the young man says, don't you mean you're one of the best artists in the city? And, and he says, I'm okay. And then he notices that he's starting to do the tattoo. And so he turns to him and he says, don't you, aren't you supposed to be drawing that first? And, and I love this line. He says, stay in your lane, bro. <laughs> one of the last ones I saw was the, the babysitter. I, I don't get the ones about the sports announcer. I, I don't get that one, but I really like the babysitter. The babysitter standing there, the parents are getting ready to go out. And uh, so the babysitter's trying to reassure them because... Evidently, they're nervous, and so uh, she says, don't worry, I'm okay with children. Parents, just okay? Relax, I'm not going to forget anything. And so she begins to ask, bedtime's at 11, right? No, 8. They're allergic to shellfish, aren't they? No, peanuts. (laughs) And then uh, she uh, she asks, what's the Wi-Fi password? This is what every babysitter wants to know just as the parents are leaving and the parents say, it's the children's name. And she looks back at him and she says, wow, that's not helpful. (laughs) Just okay is not okay. It's not okay in any of these categories and it's not okay with God to be just okay. That's what Romans 2's message to us this morning, that if you thought it coming in here, that this would help you be okay with God, just okay is not okay. So let's look at verse one, because what Romans 12 is going to give us is a series of these just okay statements by Jews, just as as uh, uh, Jay uh, said, the, the audience are, are, is primarily Jewish believers in this small church in the city of Rome and then to the greater Jewish community that lives there, about 50,000 people. And so he's addressing them that they think they're okay. And so they've, they're going to rest how they're okay with God on a series of uh, platforms or statements or ideas that they think make them okay with God. And, and Paul's going to slowly, systematically uh, say, just okay is not okay, not with God. And so the very first one's in the first verse that Jay read to us this morning. Therefore, you have 
no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You see, in the previous chapter, if you were here last week, if you're not, it it can be summarized in two ideas. The first idea is this, is that God has created man, humanity, all of us, every, every human being that's ever existed and ever will exist with an original design. That is, God didn't make us and say, now go be whatever you want to be. Go, go do life any old way you want to do life. I have an idea of how I designed you and the way in which you work properly, the way humanity is supposed to operate, the way in which it can be fully realized as a human being. I, I set that course But here's the indictment. You have gone your own way. You've rebelled and distorted my original design. The word that he uses is natural or natural order or natural design. And then he's going to, this is the second big idea. If the first one's in eight, verse 18 uh, uh, through 23, the next big idea is going to begin in verse 24. He's going to go with this idea all the way to the end of chapter one. Uh, verse uh, 32, and he's basically going to say, here's all my evidence. Isn't that the way an indictment works? A prosecutor comes into a, a court setting and he lays out the indictment, the charge, because you have abandoned my design, you have abandoned the designer. That's what he says. He, he says, for, for you have exchanged worshiping the creator for worshiping the creature for you have uh, abandoned the truth about everything, including me. And let me give you the evidence of that. And he begins to make this long list, beginning in, in, in about 24th and, and following of from homosexuality to, to uh, uh, murder, to stealing, to uh, all kinds of other evils like gossiping and malice and, and disobedience to parents. And the list is, is not exclu- exhaustive. He's not trying to be exhaustive. He's trying to lay evidence. It's kind of like when you go to court, you only need to bring as much evidence as needed for the conviction. That is, Paul could have brought a whole lot more. But instead, he, he brought enough that no man has excuse. That's the, the repetitive refrain of chapter 1 and chapter 2. No one has any excuse for abandoning the designer and his design. And the only people who would have been probably enjoying Paul's letter at this point, to this point, are the Jewish believers in the congregation as it's read. You can imagine, picture a room a lot smaller than this one. Smaller uh, than our fellowship halls, probably the, the size around our chapel, maybe even smaller than that, where a hundred believers have gathered together because a letter from an apostle has arrived to be read for everyone to hear from start to finish, no breaks, just the entire letter. And you can imagine about this time, right, right before verse one, the Jews are saying, amen. So be it. They're, they might even be, be cheering at this point. Paul, you nailed it. That's what's wrong with the nations. That's the word nations is what Gentile really means. 
The word Gentile is uh, the word for the nations. Everybody who's not Jewish. It's a pejorative word. That, that is, they didn't mean that as a compliment. They meant that as a put down. And so they would have been cheering. Paul, you got it right. That's what they do. We, we've seen it firsthand. They're horrible. They're unclean. That's what Jews call Gentiles. Unclean. And pagan. Now, why would they be able to say that? Why would they think they're able to say that? It's because they think they're okay morally. See, they see that list and they think, we're not doing those things. We're not like that. We're constantly reading the scriptures, having it explained to us in church. We understand. We're trying to conform our lives to the will of God. And Paul tells him, nope. And his choice of words are are so impactful. You practice some of the same things. You, you, You practice similar things. No, you practice the very same things. What he's getting at here is what's going on in your heart is the same thing that is going on in their heart. Yes, you might not be murdering or or stealing in the uh, uh, conventional way as we understand those, but the seeds of those sins are in your heart because you're part of humanity. See, the Jews did not see themselves as part of the human race. Not exactly the same. Because we'll see that in a moment as they begin to, to say, we're okay because we're Jews. But right now, just to understand, they, they think they're okay because they're morally better, at least from their perspective, than Gentiles. Because they have the moral high ground, because they have the law. I think one of the things that we fail to do as, as Christians is recognize that there are tr- two ways to run from God, not one. There are, there are two lostness, to use a, a Tim Keller idiom, two, two ideas that, that both equally don't have God on your heart. They're, they're described for us in illustration form in Luke 15 when Jesus gives the parable of what's often called the prodigal son should have been called, in my opinion, the lost sons, plural, because there are two lost sons there, not one. In fact, the rebuke is not about the first lost son, but the second lost son, because one of the dangers of being the second kind of lostness is you don't realize you're lost. Now, one of the things that we do, if you, if you really want to, I'm going to explain it to you in a, in, a, in a very quick way, but if you want to go much deeper, one of the things we do for all of our visitors, if you're a visitor with us, is that we give you a book called The Prodigal God. It's not very uh, thick. It's, it won't take you very long, but it takes the, the prodigal son and explains in more detail than I'm going to be able to do for you on, on this morning the two ways in which people run from God, the elder brother and the younger brother. And so you can pick that up. Even if you have been here a while and you can't remember where that book is, you can go get one. It, it won't cost you a thing. Just pick it up at the, at the Welcome Center. We can always get more. But it really goes at the heart of what we believe our ministry is here at EP. 
that it's not just to capture the hearts of the first son, but it is also to capture the hearts of the second son because both need saving. The first son, the one that we typically refer to as the prodigal son, he's the young uh, son. He's come to his father and says, you know, I've had enough of this farm life. I need to go to the city. I need to experience life. So dad, I know I'm not supposed to get this till you die and you're not really uh, looking like you're going to die anytime soon. Can you give me my inheritance now? Now that's a nice way of saying, dad, I want your money, but I don't want you. You see, that's a running. Dad, I I don't mind calling you dad, but I don't want you to be my dad because dads don't give their inheritance to their sons before they die. And so the son physically runs away from his father. And and we understand that. We know people who, who, who know that there is a God. They grow up sometimes in a Christian home, but they want that independence. And so they, they run in their hearts, far from God and far from God's people. We know that. That's why we call them prodigals. But the church's job, mission, isn't just to go after those people, but also the second son, because the second son's heart is as far from his father as the first son. Because when the first son comes back and repents and comes back to his father and and his father gives him the signet ring of the family and and puts new shoes on his feet and and gives him a new cloak and he throws him a party to to say, my son was dead, but now he's alive. Let's all have a great time. He's home. The elder brother refuses to go into the party of his brother. And in fact, when the father comes back out and, and tries to entreat him to come in, he says, dad, I've done everything you told me to do. I have followed every one of your commands, but you have not thrown me a party. You haven't killed a fatted calf for me and my friends. Do you hear his heart is as far away, but he's right there. You see, there's two kinds of loss. There's the one who physically runs. That's where his heart takes him. The other one, his heart is far from the father, but it keeps him there. Both want what the father can bless him with, but not the father. You see, the elder brother is another way of saying, I'm okay because I am better than him. John Gershner, you you probably don't know who he was, but he was a 20th century theologian and he was writing against a book that was real popular in the 60s, I'm okay, you're okay. And so he had this phrase, he says, I'm not okay and you're not okay because everyone is not okay. And and, And that's really Paul's point. Jews, I'm not talking about the Gentiles and the Jews differently. We're all running from the designer in order to create our own designs. Each has turned his own way, declares the Lord. But the iniquity of us all has fallen on him as the rest of that verse. This has been Paul's point since 118 that he doesn't finish until 323. Romans 118, where he says, for, for this reason, the wrath of God is being revealed. And then the indictment and the evidence flows. And he doesn't conclude it until he gets to chapter 3, verse 23, when he says, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. 
and he says, Jews, I know you're hearing this and you think it's for them, but this is also for you. You think, verse four, that God's kindness is evidence that you're okay when his kindness is really the opportunity for you to repent because you are as far from the father's heart as the Gentiles, the younger brothers. And he's being kind to you and patient with you. And he is luring you and begging you and pleading with you to come home. Not just physically, because you're right here in the church. You're right here. But your heart is as far away. The Jews thought because they weren't doing what the pagans were doing, that they were okay with God. If you've never heard of Herman Melville, he was a Presbyterian Scot who wrote Moby Dick. So you probably have heard the book because it became a movie. But he has this quote in the book that is phenomenal. It's almost as if Paul could have written it, but it fits this Presbyterian Scot so well. He says, uh, heaven have mercy on us all. Presbyterians and pagans alike. For we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. Paul would have said it this way. Heaven have mercy on us all. Jews and Gentiles alike. We are all cracked about the head in desperate need of mending. You see, what came first in Herman Melville... He didn't say pagans and Presbyterians. He put the Presbyterians first. Because it doesn't matter whether you're an older brother or a younger brother, we're all running from the designer. And the evidence is the fact that we have distorted the design. Paul's making the point that no one is okay with God because all of us have rejected God's design for humanity and therefore we've rejected the designer. The gospel tells us, but there's a way back to the design and the designer. And rather than ask you to go get the broom from the wicked witch of the West or to climb Mount uh, Mordor or to uh, go on some pilgrimage, he says, I have sent to you what I require. And all you have to do is receive it by faith. Back in chapter one, verse 17. For in this gospel, the righteousness that comes from God is being revealed from faith to faith. The righteous live by faith. That what God requires, he has provided. And nothing is required of you. And that's to replace all other righteousness. Jewish righteousness, Gentile righteousness, and even okay righteousness. Because all righteousness but Christ's righteousness falls short of the glory of God. The other way they thought they were okay is in verse 17. This verses 1 through 5, he comes down in in verse 17. He's got a lot to say in between, but I just wanted you to hear these statements. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew... Now, a Jew is a short way of saying something that that is often much longer in in the text. 
A Jew is a, a short way of saying children of Abraham. Sometimes it's called uh, children of our fathers, and they mean Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Sometimes they will just uh, say uh, a father Abraham, but they're all ways to say, or Jew is, is the way to say all of these things all at one time. That we are part of God's special people because he has chosen us out of the world, out of the nations to be God's uh, a guide to him to, from the nations or to the nations. What that neglects, I think, is an understanding that the story doesn't begin with Abraham. The story in the Bible begins with creation, that God is the designer and has designed this world and brought it into being for his glory. But our enjoyment, but for his glory. And that we looked at that glory, that importance, that that weight, that beauty, and said, we want our own. And so we said, yes, you designed us, but we're going to go this way. And there's the rejection of the designer. And so beginning in verse 15 of chapter three, God begins to say, but I will not leave you this way because I am committed to my creation because I called it very good. And though it is not good now, it will be good because I will redeem it. And how God has chosen to redeem it from verse 15 of chapter 3 of Genesis all the way through Revelation is to provide a redeemer. And this redeemer is going to come through a singular family. This family is the Jews, specifically Abraham's family. They are the agents of redemption because it is through them God has uniquely blessed all of creation. The Messiah comes from this single family. If one error is to say the Jews matter not at all, another error is that they matter in totality of all that there is. Paul's in between and saying they matter because they are the agents of redemption because the Messiah comes from that singular family of the earth. Now, before you start feeling really good about yourself, if you come from a Jewish background, please understand. It comes with this caveat, you didn't deserve it. It was all by grace. He could have chosen anyone, any family. In fact, if there's anything to prove about Abram's life is that there was nothing to commend him to God. In fact, I think one of the reasons that he picked the Jews is because if you follow the scriptures, you see that God is always advancing the kingdom through the least, not the most. Least family of the earth, least nation of the earth, least people. We're gonna, getting ready to have what? Easter. Easter, if anything, is the announcement that he who the world killed, God rose from the dead. Who are the very first people to testify to that reality? Women. And women in that culture couldn't even testify in court, much less to the world. Because God's constantly doing that. Why in the world would he do that? This ought to encourage you Jews. He did it, he did it so that nobody could get the credit. 
that only God could have the glory. Next time you, you, you think that America is this amazingly Christian nation and blessed and almost uh, an ethnocentricity about our patriotism, which almost becomes a nationalism, please understand this. If we're blessed, it wasn't because we deserved it. It wasn't because we did anything. That's the point of grace. So I have to ask this question to those of you who grew up in the church. I didn't, so I can't ask it of myself. And those of you who are children, whether you're students or you're even smaller, what's the benefit of growing up in a Christian home? There is one. You know, some people think like William F. Buckley, Buckley, if you don't know who he was, he had this famous phrase that he would utter when someone asked him if he was a Christian. And he would often say, I'm certainly not a born-again Christian. I'm a congenital Christian. What he meant by that is, I was born into the West, which is Christian, and that makes me Christian. And it's a lot like sometimes... People say, I'm okay with God because I was born into a Christian home with Christian parents who took me to church, who explained the gospel, who shared with me the truths of scripture. And those are the benefits. But being okay with family is not the same thing as being okay with God. There are great benefits to being born into a covenant family. I enumerated just some of them. But being born into a Christian family doesn't make you okay with God. As Nelson Bell, who was the father-in-law of Billy Graham, used to say, God has no grandchildren, only children. No one is born into Christianity. You're born again into Christianity. We all know stories of Christian parents who did all the right things, but their children ended up, or at least one child, as an unbeliever. How do you explain that? It's even in Scripture. Eli, a priest and, and, a, and a judge, has two unbelieving children. Being born into a Christian home doesn't make you a Christian any more than being born in a bakery makes you a bagel. The religious people of chapter 2 thought that being a Jew, part of Abraham's physical family, made them special. And it did. But it did not save them. That would require a different relationship. Look at verse 18. And you know his will. How do they know this will? Because you've approved what is excellent because you were instructed in the law. They have the scriptures. They have the best teachers who taught them. And then verse 19 says, and you see yourself as a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. They considered themselves guides to God. And actually it was their calling. But because we know the truth and we teach the truth, we think we're okay with the truth. But knowing the truth and even teaching the truth does not make you okay with God. Because it is a heart issue, not an educational problem. All the seeds of the sins that Paul described in chapter 1 
are in the Ten Commandments and then recast in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gives. And he says, this is what your heart is like. And because it is like that, you need the gospel. And even if you're not physically doing these horrendous things, the seeds of them in your heart, and that needs to break your heart. And that's why we pastors and you parents need to be careful and to listen to the sermons that we preach to our children. Because if, if our lives are not matching what we're saying, or at least saying our lives sometimes don't match, because quite frankly, they don't. Then the children will think either something is wrong with me because I'm not like my parents or that my parents were wrong. And that's what Paul begins to deal with in verse 23 when he says, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law for it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He's quoting a passage in Isaiah uh, uh, 52, right before he goes into the suffering servant of, of chapter 53. And he's saying, we who possess the truth and we consider ourselves guides and teachers, but if our lives and our witness lead people away from God rather than to him, even if it's not our intent, but it is our impact, we must repent. We must turn from that. The last one and we can do this one fairly fast. Paul begins talking about circumcision and he says, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Circumcision is the sign of membership into the covenant people of God in the Old Testament. Abraham is commanded shortly after he starts having children to circumcise all the males in his household as a sign of being part of God's covenant people. Similarly, in the New Testament, that's what baptism is, a sign of your membership into the visible body of, of the church of Jesus Christ. And both signify two things, whether it's the Old Testament circumcision or the New Testament baptism, both signify a being set apart from the other humanity. Because in Paul's world, there aren't many races, there are two. Those in Adam and those in Christ. And the the sign that signifies you have moved from one humanity to the other is circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New. But it also pictures being cut off for disobedience. Here Paul defines membership in verse 28, says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not of the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Colossians 2, 11 and 12 is the New Testament mirror to that. When Paul says in him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the commission, uh, 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 circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You see, the Jews thought they were okay simply because they carried the sign. The reality is it's more spiritual than it is physical. If it's not truly pointing to the spiritual, spiritual change in your heart, then it is just a physical act. And that is all it is. Whether it's baptism 
or circumcision. So what we have is a circumcision of the heart. And when we've had that, that is by faith, we have received the righteousness of Christ on our behalf. Then we are transferred from what uh, we read at our confession this morning, transferring the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son. And because of that, the Father sees in you the beauty of Jesus because he sees his righteousness. Paul wants us to know that Jesus didn't die because the law is unimportant. He died because the law is important and it had to be fulfilled in order for us to go back to the original design and for us to get back to the designer. Our trust has to be in the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit to do this because our temptation is to judge and I don't mean, and Paul doesn't mean we're never to judge anyone anywhere for anything. Paul's not talking about any kind of judgment. I don't know how you would operate in this world if you didn't do any kind of judgment. But he is specifically talking about judging someone's unrighteousness and determining where they are with God. We are not credentialed for that kind of judgment because we have our own unrighteousness. And so whether you're new to the church or you've been in the church your whole life or somewhere in between, being okay is just not okay. I want more than just okay. I have to have more than just okay. I need Jesus. How about you? Have you been relying upon your family relationships or the fact that you know the word of God or, 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 or you have been baptized into the life of the church? And that's what you're basing your okayness on. Or have you been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son because you have received the righteousness of Christ? And therefore, the Father sees the beauty of Christ in you. If that has happened, then when he sees you, he sees beauty because you are his child and you are in his church. I pray that that's your experience. And if not, here's the good news as we come to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is for sinners who have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son. Many people would say, don't come to the table if you've got something against a brother or you have an unconfessed or unrepentant sin. That's not what the table's for. The table is for that person especially. Because in the Lord's Supper, you receive by the Spirit of Christ the gospel of grace that you are forgiven. And so it is your announcement or God's announcement to your heart that you are forgiven. Now, if you can't do that because you, you haven't been transferred, you, you're still in the kingdom of the darkness, you, in, in the sense that you, 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 you still think you're okay because of your family pedigree or, 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 or the knowledge that you possess or the relationship to a family or a membership into the church. Oh, heaven help us all. Presbyterians and Baptists and Methodists too. We all are cracked about the head and need sorely mending.
and you're welcome to the table. But if you can't come to the table because you, you haven't professed faith in Christ, there hasn't been this transfer, you don't even have to get out of your chair because we're going to come forward. Stay right where you are and you can ask the Lord to come into your heart right where you are. You can call upon his name and he will save you. He will transfer you from that kingdom into his kingdom and welcome you home. And then the church won't seem quite so alien to you. It'll be home. Let's pray.